seated. Let me encourage you to bring your, your sins and your burdens to Christ. If you're harboring them, if you're feeling the weight of them, the burden of sin, surely you know you can't carry it. Surely you know you're not meant to bear it. Give it to Jesus Christ. He is the answer for the burden of our sin. But he also, for the burdens of, of life as well, <clears throat> the challenges that we face, cast them all upon him. He careth for you. Turn in the Word of God this morning, beloved, to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7. I wish to finish this chapter today with the Lord's help. We're going to read from verse 25. We looked at verse 25 last Lord's Day, so we'll read that text and then just read through to the end where we hope to get some idea of what is being said at the close of this chapter. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. It needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself." For the law maketh man high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Amen. May the Lord bless His precious word. This is for our comfort. Let us receive it. Let us believe it. And may the Lord use it in our lives. Let's pray. God, we need Thy help. To consider thy word is no light matter. We are not simply to read it like we may read other things. It demands all of our attention. It demands a response from us. Those things that we are to believe, help us to believe them. Those things that we are to do, help us to do them. Those things that we are to love, help us to love them. We pray that Thou wilt shed light on Thy Word, not simply by the utterances of a man, but by the ministry of the Spirit, that we would enjoy what it is to hear from God. I pray, help Thy people to hear from God. I can't make them. I can't even make myself. Well, we can hear the words of God. But that's different. That's different. It's like those two in the road to Emmaus. They could hear what Jesus was saying. And 
Yet there was something missing when there was a recognition that Christ was there, ministering directly to their hearts. When they realized what was going on. Or sometimes we're like Samuel where we, we hear what is being said to us. But we're not quite sure how to respond. So Lord, we pray that Thou wilt enable us to respond aright today. Come in the power of Thy Spirit and advance Thy kingdom in our hearts and beyond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle in this section of Hebrews has been elaborating on the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and doing so in light of the what was still a present reality for Jews. That present reality was the fact that those of the line of Aaron, those Levites, were still functioning in a fashion in the temple. The high priest or the claim to the role of high priest was still being made. And they were elevated, and they were seen as essential, essential to the worship of God. It is now three decades or more since Christ died upon the cross, and yet still, still there is this sense that, that this has value, this has merit. We can't just set this aside. In contrast to that, the apostle, aware that these things are still going on, which we'll see in chapter 10, that the priests are still functioning, still doing their roles. In light of that, he is, he is helping his recipients to understand that there is a diminished value to that. So much so that it is being replaced by something the Savior has done, the Lord Jesus Christ. That the two are not meant to go hand in hand and work in tandem one with the other, but because of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his person, in his work, that that then means that there's no more need for this Levitical priesthood. Now, he has gone to great lengths to argue this case. And in doing so, of course, he is coming face to face with scriptural arguments. The Levites didn't take up that role because they decided that they wanted to. It wasn't a, a, an idea of Moses that he thought might help Israel to conduct their worship in a more orderly fashion. This was by God's commandment. But in the face of commandment, there's something higher. And as I have indicated over the past weeks, when you read Psalm 110, which obviously came, came much later than when Moses was living, that Psalm immediately should have opened up the mind to the Jew to consider the fact that something is coming. Something is coming. There is another priesthood, like unto Melchizedek, who had this mysterious existence that the Scripture doesn't give any indication of where he came from or his lineage after him. It gives no insight into other aspects of his lineage at all. None of that is, is all kept from us. But he functions as a priest. And he is recognized by Abraham, the father of us all, the one who is seen as the father of the Jewish nation, the one who is seen through which the promises are distinctly given to him and to his posterity, yet even outside of Abraham, God was working. And God had a man that Abraham recognized was in a superior position to himself. And so he pays tithes to him. He recognizes his authority, indicating the fact that Abraham saw one more superior to himself who functioned as a priest 
that all ties into, and I'm not going to spend any more time getting into more detail, but the question then we should ask as we come to the close of the chapter is, so what? So what? Well, the answer to that could be given in various ways. If God intends, or let me reword that, since God intends His Son to take the place of all that was typified in the Levitical order, since He is sufficient to take their place and does a better job than what they typified, then not only is it wrong for us to continue putting weight upon the Levitical priesthood, it's wrong for us to to desire it to continue. Now, God in His mercy, in in the mercy of His providence, obliterated the priesthood in the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, just a few years after this epistle was given. And that, in many ways, prevented the Jews from some of the temptation and removed from them this, this, this draw to tradition, that the power of tradition, the fear of letting go and finding sufficient in Christ in the present moment, there's still this, this, this balance. And as I've indicated in the past, it's hard for us to, to really feel how challenging it was to let go of the traditions. Because not all traditions were bad. Not all traditions were like those Jesus addressed where they made the, the law of God of none effect by your traditions. Some traditions are good traditions. The apostle makes this plain. They're traditions that are coming out of the Word of God. They're established because God requires it. And that's what you have with Aaron and his sons and the subsequent ministry through those centuries. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it asks this question in question 31, why is he called Christ that is anointed? Why? Why is he called the anointed one? The answer given there is because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. So in that question, they look at Christ and who he is in his offices, why he is anointed to these offices, and why those offices are are conducted by him, what he does in, in exercising that position. But the next question becomes more pastoral in the sense of, well, well, how then does this relate to us? And the next question asked in the catechism is, why are you called a Christian? Why are you called a Christian? And the answer given there is, because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in His anointing, so that I may as prophet confess His name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to Him, and as king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. That's good, isn't it? Like, 
to, to consider Christ in his offices and then by virtue of our union with him, how we then interact in those offices, what we're able to do to confess his name, to present our bodies a living sacrifice, and then to fight sin and Satan. These are encouraging things. And so as you examine, and as we come to the close of this particular segment of, of the priesthood, the focus on the priesthood of Christ, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about there is a so what here. As Christ functions as priest, there are things that, that, that impact me with regard to that. And one of those things we looked at last week where we have in verse 25 a synopsis of, of what it means for the believer then to have Christ as our high priest instead of Aaron and his posterity. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. We often think about that language in terms of the worst kind of sinner can be saved by Christ. And that is true. That is true. But that's not the emphasis of the text. That's not the driving heartbeat of the language. The driving heartbeat of the language is that those whom Christ saves, He saves completely. He saves completely. When He sets His hand upon you, when He draws you to Himself, He can complete the work. This is the underpinnings to language like Philippians 1.6, that He which hath begun a good work in you is able to perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. He will perform it, and He is performing it. And the means by which He performs it is through, in part at least, the ministry of Christ at the right hand of God, ever living to pray, and He will save to the end. That means no enemy can come between you and Christ. There's nothing Satan can do that will cause you to experience this severing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There is no sin, no sin that can come into your life that will threaten your standing in Christ if He has set His love upon you. And there's no sickness that will so overwhelm you that it will quench your faith Utterly, you are kept. Get it into your heart, beloved, before we go any further. Get it into your soul. Read verse 25. He is able, he has the power to save them. Who's the them? We saw it last week. They come to God by Jesus Christ. So how do you know he's doing this for you? Did you come to God by Jesus Christ? Did you say, I need to get to God? I need to be reconciled with God. And the only answer for me in regards to that is Jesus Christ. So I'm coming, resting in Christ, believing on Christ, abandoning any hope of my own righteousness, and looking to Him as all that I need. If you did that, if you did that, then this is what He is doing for you today. He's able also to save them to the uttermost, to the end, that come unto God by Him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is the ground of your hope. It's not, it's not that you're resolved. And I'm for resolutions. That's not wrong. Like, it's not wrong to say I'm, I'm resolved to be a Christian and to say I'm dedicated to living the Christian life. Those things aren't wrong, but the power to see it through is not in the resolution. You understand that, don't you? Please, you do understand that. The power 
of what you're determined to do and how you're determined to live is not in you saying, I'm going to do it. If you didn't have Christ interceding for you, you would fail. If you didn't have the gospel, you would never succeed. So, as we finish up this chapter, titled the message simply, A Priesthood Exalted Above the Heavens. A Priesthood Exalted Above the Heavens. Because this is where he takes us. To consider one, and this already has come out a little, but it comes out more here, who is in a place that no son, neither Aaron nor his sons occupied. So, as we consider these verses, note with me first of all, the impeccability of his person. The impeccability of his person. This priest that we have, verse 26 says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. He became us. He became us. What does he mean? He is fit for us. He's in this fitting place for us. This language has came out. I don't have it here. It's in chapter 2. I'm just trying to remember now exactly where it was. Yes, verse 10, Hebrews 2, verse 10. You have the same language there. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So there's the similar language there. You have it here and it has this idea of fitness. The fitness of this high priest. Now he had to be. He had to perform certain duties. And we, we looked at that back in chapter 5. Some of the qualities that the, the priest has to have. Again, if you just scan your eye over chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things to, pertaining to God and so on. Uh, he, he, he's taken from among men so he can have compassion on the ignorant and them that are out of the way and so on and so forth. He has certain qualities that he must possess. Our Lord Jesus then comes and has the same the same right, he is, he is fit. He became us. He took our nature. Not on, didn't take him on, on him, this, the nature of angels, but of the seed of Abraham. That's the idea. He has a fitness to represent and stand in the place of his people. And we need more than that. We need one who has successfully lived life. One who has pleased and satisfied God. One who is able to rightly bring us near to God because of the way in which he lived. In fact, I was, I was thinking about this. What do we need? Well, we need, we need a priest, obviously, who, who lives and did live in a way we have not, right? We might say then he has successfully lived life. What is a successful life? One that glorifies God. What glorifies God? Obedience. And what's the challenge of obedience? Temptation. We live in a world of temptation. And Jesus Christ faced temptation, faced all of that, and yet was not tainted by it, which is what then it goes on to elaborate upon, the character of this one, what we talk here about the impeccability of his person. So as we think of the impe impeccability of his person, first note the reality of it, the reality of it. You see it here in the language. 
For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled. These words are similar. Obviously, you can see that. Even in English, there's, there's a similar sense by them, and, and there's correlation as well, uh, no matter what language you read it in. It's, it's it, giving this idea of purity. But there is nuance. There is nuance. And as I looked at it, I saw three different things here. You see in these words, these adjectives that are given, his relationship to God, his relationship before men, and his relationship in the world. Before God, before men, and in the world. Before God refers to him being holy. He is holy. Now, when you read that word sometimes in your Bible, holy, has an in, a, a sense of it's set apart. So instead of being found among the common, it's, it's become set apart or consecrated. So when you read in the Old Testament, especially during the institution of the tabernacle and so on, you'll have holy garments. And all sorts of other things are described that are, are, are told, we're told are holy. But in that sense, it is, is used, a particular word is used that designates the fact that they're not common. In other words, they're holy because they've been set apart. Now, you may know this already, but the word that is here is not with regard to being set apart simply for service. It is the very essence of the thing, the very nature of the, of the person or the thing that's being referred to. So it gets to the very character. It's not just, it's holy. So you say Aaron and the Levitical priesthood was holy because it was set apart without reference to character or certain furniture that might look like furniture that you find outside the tabernacle. It looks exactly the same. It's made of the same substance. But that which is in the tabernacle is holy because it's consecrated, set apart for a particular service. That's not the idea here. The idea here is the very nature of that which is referred to is in itself holy. So the Levitical priesthood was holy by being set apart. But here you have such an high priest became us who is in his character actually holy. This is how God sees him. He sees him as holy. So this makes Christ distinct in terms of how God sees him. Jesus Christ didn't come simply to be consecrated to service. He was. But he has to actually be holy. And that's what the apostle is saying is true of him. This is the one who delighted to do his will. Now, we've touched on this before, the doctrine of Christ's impeccability. And when we use the word impeccability, when we say that it applies to Jesus Christ, it's used theologically in a very narrow sense in which the argument is being made that not only did he not sin, but he could not sin. Now, good men differ on this. They do. There are good men, men that are within the pale of orthodoxy who have one view and men within the same orbit who have another view. When affirming the impeccability of Christ, Shedd, theologian, said, an impeccable will is one that is so mighty in its self-determination to good that it cannot be conquered by any temptation to evil, however great. 
A will may be positively holy and able to overcome temptation and yet not be so omnipotent in its holy energy that it cannot be overcome. So he's making a distinction there. And what he goes on to argue is that Christ not only didn't sin by virtue of the power of his will and or the, the, the power of his, his resolve to obey and so on, but he goes on to argue he couldn't. He couldn't. Now, the danger of the doctrine of Christ's impeccability is that it can be taken to extremes, and you can start entering into, and I, I, I'm not going to take time getting into this, you can start making a case for, like, he could not sin, making that case in such a way or using language that pulls you into ancient heresies. So, you start espousing things like docetism, where really now you're, you're saying, well, Christ appeared to be a man, but he wasn't really a man. And that's heresy. Or other, other ancient heresies that were rejected rightly by the church when they came together concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has to be and have a true humanity. And so the, what I'm just saying to you is be careful in how you articulate concerning the person of Christ that you do not, in what you say, make Christ to be something other than a true man. He was a true man. He still retains true humanity, yet glorified because of what he has accomplished. So I'm saying that just as a warning to you. But by virtue of the way he lived and who he was, you have language like John 14, 30, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. He hath nothing in me. Something distinct about him because Satan had something in everyone else. And while some will argue that in espousing the impeccability of Christ and saying that he couldn't sin, they'll say, well, that, that means that he couldn't properly be tempted. The contrary, actually, is true. Or at the very least, it's not true to say that he wasn't actually and truly tempted. Because simply by the fact that he couldn't sin doesn't mean to say that this, the temptations were any less powerful in his experience. And so as he faces an onslaught of temptation, as he did in his life, and as you know at the beginning of his ministry, he proves himself to be the second Adam by instead of being put in a perfect garden in a perfect environment, instead he is placed in a wilderness. Instead of having access to all the most beautiful provision of the garden, he has nothing. Instead of all the ideal scenario, he is in this most challenging of scenarios and he is tempted 40 days by the devil. And we're given something of a summary of that, but there was 40 days of relentless attack by Satan, and Christ overcame it. So we maintain the impeccability that he as holy, as holy, not only that he didn't sin, but he couldn't sin, but we maintain it with careful thought that we don't want to bridge into it to make him out to be something other than what we are. He's a true humanity. True man. The contrast then between Jesus Christ and ourselves should lay us low in humility. I made reference to it already, but Psalm 40, 
where it prophetically speaks of the Messiah, then said, I, lo, I come in the volume of the book that is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. That's not us. Not us, not to the degree that it was true of him. And so Hebrews 1.9, we looked at that, of course, many months ago. It declares, thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And this isn't true of us. This is why we need Jesus Christ. Because this isn't true of us. So, he is holy. We see the impeccability of his person, the reality of it, and his relationship before God. God sees him as holy. But also his relationship before men. Harmless. Harmless. You know, I never really paused on this language as much as I have in the past week. Harmless. How much harm we, we do, wittingly or unwittingly, knowingly or unknowingly. We're always causing harm. Always. And it's impossible to avoid. And part of what Scripture teaches us is, <laughs> it tells the body of Christ, doesn't it, that we are to be forbearing toward one another, forgiving one another, as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. The, the implication is that in the body, we're harming one another. We're saying things that are offensive. We're doing things that are offensive. Again, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. The gospel comes in as the answer for it. We're able because of what we receive from God's hand through Jesus Christ to forgive, but it doesn't take away the implication. <laughs> You're causing harm. You're causing harm. I'm causing harm. We can't get through a day without in some way causing harm. You're not the perfect example, continually, always, perpetually, without fault, pushing people up, sanctifying people, elevating their hearts toward God, enabling them to live in more obedience to God. You're a trial to them. The way in which you live at times makes them question. <laughs> and, and, and doubt, and, and just you face those challenges. Now, of course, it's not to be so far that we bring forth nothing but bad fruit and so prove that we haven't the root of the matter. Don't get me wrong. But we are not like Christ. Of course, this is speaking in terms of the priesthood, being harmless as a priest. And some priests were bad. They were. Come to mind any? Think of Eli's sons. In 1 Samuel 2, 24, where Eli tells them, Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. You're making them transgress. These people are bad enough. Israel's bad enough. It doesn't need priests who make them transgress. And that's what Eli's sons were guilty of. They were therefore harming the body of Christ. Now, if you were to judge the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ by today's standards, you might say well, he was doing harm too. He would have been cancelled very early in his ministry, wouldn't he? Because he offended people. He said things that were offensive. He looked at the Pharisees in the eye and he called them hypocrites. He looked at his own disciples at times and equated them to doing the work of the devil. He said things that were harsh. He wasn't, by modern definitions, he wasn't always nice. 
How do you define nice? That's about the objective. If nice is, the term, is, is defined in terms of the effect it has on how I feel, then Jesus came short. And he did harm. But if nice is, could be defined by what provokes us to glorify God, turns us away from what actually harms us to what does us good and brings glory to the Lord, then, then nice can be rightly said. Jesus was nice because when he was even talking straight with people, it was to help them go in the right direction. To see their shortcomings. So he was harmless. Yes, he offended people. Some were deeply offended. But he never harmed them. And that's, that's, that's not us. I mean, we, we think of the language of the Lord Jesus where he warns about offending one of the little ones and it being better for us that a millstone hung around our neck and cast into the sea than do that. So we must be careful. And we're so thankful because we may look back at our past and I, I warn you not to do this too much. We can look back and we say, I know I harmed that person. Or I know I wasn't everything that I should have been and I may have caused harm. And that person to this day may actually use what you said or what you did as an excuse for why they don't believe, why they don't give their lives to Christ. That's a heavy thing to bear. And people can be hurtful in their own way, but they turn and say, I wouldn't want to be a Christian. I've seen what you've done to me or I've gone through this. And there may be sometimes truth in the things they say. Now what is the Christian to do with that? Now you can say, I didn't do anything. I never caused any harm. Well, now you're saying you're Jesus. You're saying you're Jesus. Because the only one who never caused harm, truly never caused harm, is Jesus Christ. And you're not him. And so you acknowledge it. You confess it. You bring it to the one who has never caused any harm. And you get under the blood of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for all sin, to wash away. And to the one who has omnipotence to restore what has been destroyed by locusts. He's able to overcome all those ill will and feelings. And so you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you in due season. There's humility we come and say, I may have hurt this person. You try to write it where you can. Don't live under the constant burden of it. Get it to the cross. Put it where it belongs. Place it on the shoulders of the burden bearer. And then put right, humanly speaking, what you can. But don't, the person who argues that and says, when they stand before God on judgment day, it won't simply be what you did. They will go there for their own works. That's what they need to realize. We are not harmless. So we, 
We're so thankful for Christ who was. Then we have his relationship in the world. Undefiled. Undefiled. Again, the priests were sometimes the product of their context. It doesn't say it explicitly, I don't think. But there's, you, you can see it, I think. I think I can make an argument. If you read Malachi, you read the opening chapters of Malachi particularly, you see in Malachi's prophecy, he, he lays heavy emphasis on the priesthood and how they have, how they're not where they ought to be. And I imagine, I imagine that young priests were coming up and they were being impacted by their context. Now, it didn't excuse them. Don't get me wrong. It's not excusing them for what they did and said and where they came up short. But it had to be that there was a culture that had developed among the priesthood that in some way they were being defiled by. Because it's hard. It's hard to be the young person growing up and seeing a problem and try to correct it. Right? Things become institutionalized. Right? You, you, see, you see this in politics. You know, the, the aspiring politician who's doing his best to try and clean everything up and do what's right, but it is extraordinarily hard when some sins and practices become so intertwined with the way it is that you will face nothing but resistance in any effort to change things. You see this with slavery? See the kind of things that have done in the past? It's no different today. Someone comes up and tries to make some institutional change it's, it's, it feels impossible. You could spend your entire life exercised in giving yourself to one cause. You might get there, or maybe someone will pick up the baton later on and finally succeed even when you're gone. But it's hard. It's hard. And so I imagine even in Malachi's day, the priests were defied, but Jesus wasn't. Jesus wasn't. You know, John the Baptist had to withdraw himself in order to keep that away, didn't he? He had to withdraw into the wilderness. Part of that was for himself. For the sake of himself. Withdrawing away from the priest. He was of the priestly family. He has to withdraw away from that. Can't be because he'd become defiled. But Jesus Christ was able to be among them. And yet not be defiled by them. So we have seen then the reality of the impeccability of Christ. See then also the result of it. What's the result of it? Well, look at verse 26. Separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Separate from sinners. Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 1. The blessed man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He fulfills that. When you read Psalm 1, don't think first about yourself. Think first about Jesus. He's the blessed man, praise God. And then you endeavoring to walk even so as he walked, then you try to mimic and give yourself to the same. He was everything the Nazarite sought to be without holding to a Nazarite vow. What was the purpose of a Nazarite? Number 6, 1, to separate themselves unto the Lord. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. He separated himself onto the Lord. He was separate from sinners. Now, I say this is the result of 
the adjectives given, holy, harmless, undefiled, because I think in saying separate from sinners, there's a part in which there, is, there was a, a truth about that in his life, and also that is taking us to where he currently is. That because he was distinct in how he lived, it led into this distinct position that he held. Now, I, I can't go there, but if you, if you read, if you read the, the account concerning the death of Aaron, God deliberately made the death of Aaron public. Public. I was thinking about that this week. I was thinking about, why did he do that? Why did he set Aaron and his death public? Was it not that here you have the first high priest, and he is mediating, but he dies. He dies. He experiences the same problem of the curse that those he is ministering onto experience. Death. But Jesus Christ, living among men, is separate from sinners. He overcomes by his resurrection. And so he is then made higher than the heavens. The idea is he is, he is set exalted above the heavens. So you have, because of the impeccability of his life, he is separate and exalted. This is the result of the life that he lived for you. John Owen says of this clause here, made higher than the heavens. He says, this refers to the present place and state of our great high priest. He was for a season made lower than the angels and descended into the lower parts of the earth. And that for the discharge of the principal part of his priestly office, namely the offering of himself for a sacrifice unto God. But he abode not in that state, nor would he discharge his whole office and all the duties of it therein. And therefore, he was made higher than the heavens. He was not made higher than the heavens that he might be a priest, but being our high priest and as our high priest, he was so made for the discharge of that part of his office, which yet remained to be perfected, for he was to live forever to make intercession for us. End quote. I just bring that in to summarize the sense of higher than the heavens. He already is high priest. He's functioning in that role and then successfully discharging that first particular aspect of making offering of himself unto God. He then is exalted above the heavens where he continues as a high priest, continues to exercise his office, living to pray for you and for me bringing us successfully into his presence. I have wonder if you can't see a messianic fulfillment of Psalm 57 verse 5. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Is there not even in a sense of that? Messianically, you see it. The Jesus Christ, the Son of God, be exalted. Go to that position of exaltation where you discharge your work that will save us to the uttermost. And all of this, of course, him being exalted above the heavens, gives confidence to the people of God. For a moment, turn to Ephesians 1. Now, in case you're panicking here, if we'll ever get finished today, my first point is a lot longer than the others. So, we'll go over point two and three a lot more quickly. But, What, what is Paul, Paul doing in Ephesians? He is, he, is, 
He is making believers to know what they are positionally. The, the realities of what it is to be joined to Jesus Christ. These things can't be changed. This is happening. This, this will occur. These are truths. No matter how you feel today, what this says about you is currently a reality and nothing can change it. So from, let's, let's read from verse 20, Ephesians 1 verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. What is it saying? When you read exalted in the heavens, the language of Hebrews, exalted in the heavens, made higher than the heavens, that language, made higher than the heavens, isn't just some poetic description of where Jesus is, where you think, you know, that's a poetic way of putting his ascension, made higher than the heavens. This has significance to your life. Because you read the headlines and you wonder what's going on in the world and then you come back and say, he's in the heavenly places, he's in that exalted position, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet and given to be the head over all things to the church. That is, he is governing his people and nothing, no name, no entity, no power, no politician, no nation, no empire can hinder him in his work. Nothing. Nothing. Satan is subservient. His minions are subservient. Everything serves him in his cause. Everything. So when you're afraid of something, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Does the child who stands there, where maybe a teenager, he, maybe he's 12 years of age, and a teenager, 16, starts coming up to him and bullying him. And his father, who's a three times black belt in taekwondo or something, comes out and stands there. Is that child afraid? No. No. Because while he's standing there, there's absolutely no way this guy can do anything. No fear. He's impervious to fear. He can't even, he's like, <laughs> he just looks over and he sort of laughs. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Even Try. Try. And what is that compared to Christ, the Son of God, made higher than the heavens, everything under him, everything subservient to him, and he is governing over every single event to the end that his church may be preserved, that his name would be glorified through her, and everyone would be gathered, not one of them lost, and his cause brought to perfect end as he has ordained. <laughs> Why are you afraid? Why? Come on, child of God. Why? Why be worried? I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. And maybe you're talking, talking with a brother just the other day, talking a little bit about death. And that comes under this too, doesn't it? It comes under this too. It's subservient to his role, to his reign. And all the things that lead to death, all the sickness, or the events 
road traffic accidents or cancer, whatever it might be. They're all under his government. So, we've seen here the impeccability of his person. See then, go back, the sufficiency of his work. I don't have to say much here because there's, there's repetition. Some of these things we've already seen, they're just, it's all tied up here. The sufficiency of his work, Hebrews 7, 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. But this he did once when he offered up himself. Sufficiency. Let me summarize it in these two statements. Only one priest needed. Only one sacrifice needed. And that's the contrast. They had a plurality of priests. Why? They kept dying. They had plurality of sacrifices, including the fact they had to offer one for themselves as well as for those who came to be served. Pink says, Because he was under no necessity to sacrifice for himself, the offering which he made for his people is of eternal validity. Didn't have to do it. Didn't have to. It come, ties into that, that fact he's holy, harmless, undefiled. He's distinct. God sees him as holy. He doesn't need a sacrifice. But these others, these others have to offer sacrifice for themselves. So the sufficiency of his work. Then thirdly, the permanence of his office. Verse 28. For the law, again, God had commanded under Moses that there should be a Levitical priesthood. The law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. Right? They have sin. They have shortcomings. They die. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, it comes in to supplant the law. That's the idea. It's coming in, setting aside one, bringing in of another. More of this will be elaborated later as we move on. Maketh the Son, the eternal Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Permanent. He fulfills the role better because he has no infirmity. He is the Son of God, not merely descending from Aaron. And he is not overcome by death, but rather overcomes death, as we have seen. As we close, go to, go to Romans 5. Struck by this. Because we exalt the cross, we preach the cross. Our calling is to make much of the finished work of Jesus Christ because of what it has accomplished for us. But, but look at how Paul speaks in Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, now there's a problem. There's a problem, isn't it? That's, that's men, by nature, enemies, enemies of God. Children, children, listen, that's what you are by nature. That's what you are by nature. Doesn't matter who your parents are. You come into this world an enemy of God. So that's what it says. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, brought to God by the death of his son. So think of this. We're enemies. We're enemies. Like, <laughs> there's this real problem and we can't reach up to God. We can't change what's going on. 
want you to get this, because this was a blessing to me this week. You have this impossible mission. Enemies of God. How do you fix the problem? By the cross. See that? If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, by him dying, by him dying, we are reconciled to God. Then see what Paul says. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What's he saying? This isn't just he died and reconciled us to God. He rose again. And he exercises his life in saving, in keeping, in preserving. It's actively focused upon you in your need. So when you look to the cross and you're encouraged, then look higher than the heavens and see one who lives and meets every need. Feeling the sense of poverty, wondering where you're going to make ends meet. Are you going to get a job? What's going to happen? All those concerns and fears. Does he see it? Yes, he sees it. Through his cross, he reconciled it to God. By his life, he keeps saving. He keeps keeping. He keeps carrying. Meeting every need. He lives. <laughs> he lives. Child of God, you believe it, don't you? He lives. He lives. So you can go into this week. Some of you have your things. That you, there may be a, a flurry of concern, but just he lives and everything he does, higher than the heavens, exalted, exercising without slumbering or sleeping, exercising his ministry to meet every single detail of my needs in a way that glorifies him. Worship him. Worship him. Go into this week and just worship him. He is exalted, higher than the heavens. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Oh, child of God, you, you, you harbor at times. We all do. You're, you're no different to me. There are concerns at times we wouldn't even share with our friends because we're almost embarrassed by the fact that we worry about them. And we put on a brave face. But don't put on simply a brave face. Get into, let your mind dwell upon, let your heart rest in what you have in Christ, what he is doing for you. Don't settle for an artificial peace. Let gospel consolation fill your heart. God bless thy word. Help us. Help us to understand what our Savior has accomplished. And since these truths enabled thy people to even stare death in the face, to go to the, the flames of a martyr's end with courage. Let such truths be means of buoyancy in our own faith that we might enjoy 
regardless of our outward estate, enjoy what we have in thy Son. Come victorious for thy people. Reign powerfully in every heart. And let us, let us rest. Rest in the one who will and does conquer both his and our enemies. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God now and evermore. Amen. Thank you.